ways, I'm not like a typical mature adult human. This is not news to anyone who's known me for longer than 12 seconds. But one of the things that makes me incredibly unadult is the fact that I hate going to sleep. I hate it. Most people I know who are my, my age love going to sleep. They crave it. They even look forward to it. They long for sleep, but not me. I put sleep off, and I put it off, and I drag my feet getting to bed every night. Laying down and shutting my eyes always feels like I'm tapping out in a wrestling match, um, a match between my desire to have more time to myself and my own mental sanity and physical well-being. It's hard to balance those two things, apparently. I know I need sleep. I just hate submitting to it. I like being awake. I like doing stuff. And when, when you're sleeping... You don't get to do a lot of stuff. So I guess that's kind of the point of sleep is to not do stuff. But I, the only thing I hate more than going to sleep is getting up from sleep. Uh, I'm not real great at that either. And that's probably because I keep myself in a constant state of sleep deprivation. I'm, my, my body is threatening mutiny if I don't cling to my pillow like a sailor clinging to a dinghy in a wake of a shipwreck. I, I have a complicated relationship with sleep. And yet every night, I cave to it. And you do too. We all do. We, we all eventually cave to sleep. In fact, if we didn't ever submit to sleep, we would die within two weeks. Your brain needs sleep. It's what makes ex extreme sleep deprivation such an effective means of torture. It, you need to sleep nearly as much as you need food, water, oxygen, shelter. The body needs rest. The human body is designed for rest, which is something... I've always found just a little bit absurd. I mean, it's normal because we all do it, but have you ever thought about that? How we spend between a quarter and a third of our entire existence drooling onto our pillow in a state of semi-consciousness? It's weird when you think about it. Our creator, our creator, well, you're all saying, I don't drool, but come on. <laughs> Who are you fooling here? Our creator created us to submit every single day to hour after hour of darkness, loneliness, solitude, and imagination, immobility. He creates us to submit to that, and we do so every single day. And out of that comes a recharged, reinvigorated individual with sharpened mind and strengthened body, ready to work and play and hurt and heal and love and worship and fail and grow. Our creator created us with a need for rest, despite my nightly protestations to that fact. And that's our 12th and final reword in this three-month series. The last reword is rest. We've been re-examining some of the key concepts in the life of Christ and the life of a follower of Christ. Can Oh, I forgot to bring, I had candy, I had a bowl of candy I was going to bring and reward people who got, you don't get candy, but you will get the pride of getting right answers. Can anybody name even six of the 12? I'm interested to know. Anybody want to try? Repentance, remain, yes. Terra's two for two. What's that? Resurrection was in there. All great rewords. Um, you win, Dale. They all started with R-E. Congratulations, you get all the candy. <laughs> Rebellion was one. I'll just list them. There was Revelation, which is how we know truth, was how we started. And then Rebellion and Rejection. Redemption, which is the one that Marnie did. Resurrection, reconciliation, rebirth, repentance, refining, remaining. Last week we did religion versus relationship. Some of them are overarching explorations of Christianity as a whole, particularly revelation and last week's relationship versus religion. They're more about 
how we have our faith, what our faith looks like, rather than concepts, constructs of our faith. Some highlight humanity's tendency to damage itself. That was early on. We talked about rebellion and rejection. While most of the others highlight God's tendency to heal and repair those same damages that we do. Some reflect on our our role in the ongoing, long ongoing process of salvation. So things like repentance, refining, and remaining, those are things that we are active in. While others reflect the roles that only Jesus could accomplish, resurrection and redemption among them. Most are found throughout the expansive story of scripture from beginning to end. Um, but some, like reconciliation and rebirth, are found in just isolated stories like the word rebirth and reconciliation are not common words at all, but they are mega themes in scripture. Um, they have maximum impact. And sometimes those stories don't even use those words themselves. But all of these words and many, many more, obviously, like I had to trim probably 20 words off the re-series of re-words that are in the Bible. So this series could go on and on and on and on. But they all have one thing in common, all the ones that, that I used. Together, they shape our understanding of the gospel the good news of God's inbreaking work into our broken humanity, into our broken lives. That's what they all, they all show us what the gospel is, what it's about, and how it works inside of us. All of these words carry the tune from the earliest notes of Genesis 1 to the concluding crescendo of Revelation. They're stories that, that carry through like a tune that hums its way all through scripture. And perhaps no word captures that overarching nature better than today's word, which is rest. Rest is a quiet and unassuming word. It seems small and weak and innocuous. We barely notice it as it weaves this beautiful scarlet thread from the first to the last words of our Bibles. Though it is small and quiet, rest has enormous power and purpose behind it. Ignore it at your own peril, as I learn every morning around 7 a.m. when my alarm goes off for the first of six times. We need rest. We are designed for rest. And one of the most significant mega themes of scripture is our God's abs <laughs> oh. Oh, so our God's absolute insistence that we find our rest in him. So I hope that you had a full 8 hours last night or at least a tight 20 minute nap during announcement time because our reexamination of rest deserves our full attention. And we'll begin fittingly enough in the beginning. There's so much to say and teach about Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, but for now, suffice it to say that God alone is creator and he is in absolute control and he loves and values his creation very much. Especially, especially one small, sentient, soulful, image-stamped, fumbling and bumbling element of creation, and that's human beings. He loves all of creation, he values all of it, but there's one that is special in in a significant way, and that's us. God called each aspect of creation good, but it wasn't until humans came along that he looked at the whole portrait of creation and said, no, it's very good. We creatures, collectively known as humankind, are the climax of our creator's creative process. That's all true. That's all the the background to Genesis 1, that the climax of creation is you. It's humanity. However, and I'm quoting a scholar named Gordon Wenham here who says, The creation of man in God's image may be the climax of creation, but it's not the goal of creation. That is the seventh day, the day when God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That quote, frankly, startled and stunned me when I read it. The goal of God's creation is rest. 
It's what everything builds up to. The initial six days were like a long, hard day of fruitful labor. And you guys know this feeling probably better than I do. I think of when I was working at Hootmer's and it was time to clean the barns. We have one week to get the, the barns totally ready to go, totally clean. Six days to work your butt off. And at the end, there's fresh wood chips on the floor, fresh paper laid out for feed, freshly repaired water lines ready to go, freshly washed walls, freshly eaten Sharon Hoopmer meals, feeling satisfied and exhausted bodies. Everything is ready for the life that will fill those barns. And frankly, when the life comes in, they just poop all over everything and ruin it, make a mess of everything, earn all the hard work. And then every few weeks you have to start over. And that's what Genesis 1 is like with God. Creation is all ready to go, ready to be filled with fruitful and multiplying life. And it is good. And God rests to appreciate all he has made. And then we get there and we mess everything up. That's that rebellion and rejection we talked about. Forcing God to do all that hard work for us again and again and again. But that seventh day, that moment of rest is very significant and very mysterious. Have you, have you ever wondered about that? I tried looking up, I spent lots of time on Friday and lots of time yesterday morning just looking up the question, why did God rest? And you look on established uh, websites and read established books and you'll get a hundred different answers about why God rests. It's a mysterious thing. Why did God rest from his work? Surely he didn't need to recharge from physical or mental exertion like we do. He doesn't rest because he needs to recharge his body. God is spirit. He doesn't need that. It's not like his eyes got tired after focusing on every little sparrow feather that came down the assembly line. He was getting exhausted from it. He needed to rest. As Isaiah 40, 28 more artfully says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God doesn't need to rest in the same way that we need to rest. So why is the Bible so adamant that he does exactly that? rests. Well, first of all, the Hebrew word used in Genesis 2 is Shabbat, which should sound very familiar. Sounds a lot like the word Sabbath, and it is intended to. Um, That word doesn't need to mean rest, like taking a break. It can simply mean to cease, to stop. So to rest from his work, it, it might mean that he just ceased operations on that last day. But more likely, there's something more purposeful behind the idea of God resting. All of Genesis 1 reads like a takeoff of an ancient Middle Eastern pagan temple dedication ceremony. They were all the same. You build it, you fill it, then the God comes down and rests on it. The purpose of the temple dedication wasn't the priests filling it to do their work. That's like day six of creation. God creates us, his little priests, to do the work of creation. But that's not the point of a temple dedication. The point, the purpose of a temple dedication in that world was to have the God or goddess descend from the heavens and rest or dwell in their glorious new earthly home. Israel combined the earliest stories about the origins of the world with reflections on the pagan misconceptions of what divinity looks like. They thought the gods were chaotic, violent, and indifferent to humanity. And they added, the ancient Israelites, they took what they understood of of God, and they took these pagan myths, and they inserted truth into it. They They showed what the one true God is really like. He is not chaotic. He's orderly. He's in charge. And he's not violent. He's peaceful. And he doesn't, he's not indifferent to humanity. In fact, he values humanity incredibly highly. He's benevolent towards his beloved mankind. Their God, 
there being Israel, comes to rest not on some dinky temple in some backwater Babylonian city. Rather, he takes the entire earth as his temple, and even that can't hold him. Later on in the Psalms, and it's quoted throughout the New Testament, the earth is his footstool. What does he need? He can't even fill the earth. He's beyond it. But still he rests in his creation as the pagan gods would rest in their temple. Those gods, resting in their stone temples, executed judgment and blessing, wrath and kindness. They rested in their temples, but they were not at rest. It was an act of rest, the same kind of rest that our God has over creation. Ours is a God beyond our universe, beyond time, separate and holy over all he has made, and yet he still stoops into the tiny constraints of earthly existence to rest in his temple, which is the earth, and then, in the New Testament, is you, your hearts. His rest is not a rest that ceases to interact with creation. It's not a rest that stops. His rest is a rest that constantly reveals, redeems, rebirths, and refines his creation. It's an active rest. Sure, the six days of creation mark some understanding that God made all that you can see and then he, he rested. But that rest doesn't mean he stopped, obviously. Creation hasn't stopped. God hasn't stopped making anything. In fact, he's remaking you as we sit here today. The act of creation is not over, obviously. Instead, resting means dwelling with his creation and taking pleasure in serving what he has made. As it says in John 1.14, tabernacling, taking on flesh and living with us. That's what his rest looks like. like. Like the gods or goddesses resting on their temple, our God comes to rest. And as he rests, he works, he creates, he redeems. He comes to rest in the way that snow rests on a forest. It completely changes it by its presence. It actively changes it by its presence. When God comes to rest, it's an act of rest. And that activity is for our benefit and for his glory. It's an act of rest. And that's important because it's going to come up over and over. You can see this in the curses of the fall. Once humanity rebels against God and rejects the life that he intended for us, once we vandalize his glory and steal it for ourselves, then work becomes toilsome and being fruitful and multiplying, which is the command he gives, and that is childbirth, becomes agonizing. Toil and agony, pretty much the polar opposite concepts of rest. You've got rest on this side of the spectrum, toil and agony way down on this end. And the rest of the story of scripture is God calling his people to rest as he rests, taking away toil and agony. Having said that, we're going to re-examine rest throughout the rest of scripture, beginning, of course, with the Old Testament and a very important Hebrew word. Here's a fun word to say, nuach. Go ahead and say it. Nuach. You just said the Hebrew word for rest, which uh, here's a lovely little word nerd moment. The Arabic version of that same word, nuach, literally means to make the camel lie down on his breast. That's what that word means. That's their concept of rest, a camel laying down on its breast. The whole portrait of rest is one of a tired camel, which I like. If you're sleepy and you're Arabic, then your mummy will tell you, get off to bed and get something like a camel lying down on its tummy. Literally, we could call restrooms camel sitting rooms. That has nothing to do with anything. I just find it hilariously specific that the word is directly tied to camels laying down. But back to the Old Testament. There are four distinct uses for nuach in the Old Testament, four dominant types of rest. And I'll quickly give examples for each. 
The first has to do with the legality of the Sabbath, rules about the Sabbath, which was a big deal for the Israelites, as you probably know. In fact, such a big deal, it made it into the top 10 and climbed all the way to number four. We're all familiar with the Sabbath, but again, like my obsession with the absurdity of sleep, it might sound strange how seriously God takes all this resting business. The basic premise of Sabbath is simple. For six days, Hebrew people would work and make a living. And in that day, it's not like me working and making a living where I can work for five days and I have gone to the grocery store and I have all that I need in my house. In those days, you work for six days and there's still a lot of trust that goes into that. That you have one full day where you can't harvest, you can't bake, you can't, there's a lot of things you can't do, and it's a big deal. But the seventh day, as a reflection of the creation story, was a day for rest. This is what the fourth command says in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, even your slaves can't work nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So it's pretty simple. Six days you work, seventh day you don't work. But as with God's day of rest, humanity's day of rest is not a passive rest. Rest is not necessarily synonymous with relaxation, although sometimes it can be. Sometimes you just need to relax, and that's okay. But the Hebrew day of rest wasn't just a day to kick back and do nothing. Sabbaths were to be an active rest. It was intended to enhance their relationship with the God who comes to rest in their presence. It's a day of reflecting on who God is. It's a day of celebration and worship. Those are not passive things. Those are things you engage in. Those are activities that you do. It's a day set aside for trusting that God will meet all your physical needs. And that's a big deal because, like I said, the bread isn't baking itself on that day. And the firewood isn't chopping itself. And the looms aren't weaving themselves on that day. Somebody's still got to do all that work, just not on that day. That day you stop your work and you reflect and you recharge in your creator. God loved the idea of Sabbath so much. much. Not only did he command a weekly sabbath on the seventh day but a sabbath year on the seventh year in exodus 23 when nobody could harvest crops think about that farmers you were just supposed to leave your crops alone and then the poor would come in and glean what they could and the animals would come in and and eat what they could and you weren't supposed to touch your crop at all how many of you would sign up for something like that it's a lot of trust and even there was a sabbath of sabbath years so seven times seven is 49 and on the 50th year The year after the seventh of seven Sabbaths, the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, slaves were to be freed. Any slave you had in your household, whether they had willfully chosen slavery or had been, you know, they were free. And the land was redistributed so the poor could have a stake in the land. A totally radical concept. It would never fly today because we just show socialist at it. But the year of Jubilee was all about a year of total rest all of israel goes to rest the crops the land the people what's that even the land and the bible says pretty clearly over and over again the land looks forward to its sabbath rest the land wants its rest it's a pretty beautiful thing so rest is a big deal to god anyone who did not respect the sabbath and worked on the holy day was to be executed according to exodus 31 you don't rest you die So rest, for goodness sake, just rest. 
Sabbath was of monumental importance to God. Rest was of monumental importance. By observing the Sabbath, Israel was renewing its vows to the God who stoops down to dwell with them. In the same way as a physical rest recharges us, a Sabbath rest left them spiritually stronger and spiritually healthier. It recharged their faith. But that's only the first use of Nuach, and it's far from the most common. That honor for most common belongs to the second usage of Nuach, the rest of the promised land. I didn't realize this until I started studying this week. The promised land is described as a place of rest over and over and over and over. Um, We talked about the promised land a lot in the rejection sermon. That land was a big deal to the Israelites. God had promised Canaan to the very first of the fathers of faith, Abraham. It was the first promise he makes. He will have a land and I will make you prosper in that land. Like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. God would conquer that land for them after Moses driving out evil ahead of them. They had a home, they had a land of their own, and that's important to any person, to have a place to call your own. Of course, they grew self-sufficient and proud in that home, so God ripped it out from under them. But that land was of sacred importance to the people of God, then and now. Why do you think Jerusalem is such a, or the Middle East is such a hotly contentious place? Because that land is sacred to a lot of groups of people. But there's something truly There's some truly amazing language surrounding the promised land, both before and during their occupation of it. Here's just one of many examples um, from before they took the promised land. This is from Deuteronomy 12. You have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you, but you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. And then they take the land, and here's what it, how it's described in Joshua 21. Immediately after the promised land is conquered, this is what it says. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. It's fascinating that God doesn't say he gave his people victory or power or success or wealth or splendor, although all those things were there. He doesn't say, he doesn't emphasize, I will give you victory. I will give you power and dominance. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest on every side. You will be completely secure in me. Similar things are said about David and Solomon and various other kings throughout their reigns. At the height of their power, God gives them rest from their enemies on every side. That's the highest privilege a king could could achieve. Rest. Israel would suffer greatly in war and all their neighbors would suffer, suffer as well. I have real trouble with the book of Joshua. It's basically ethnic cleansing that apparently God orders. I have real problems with that. But in the end, they were to come to rest. Giving Israel power, when God says, In the end, I will give you power. That glamorizes all that bloodshed and warfare. So he doesn't say, I'll give you victory. He doesn't promise that. Instead, he promises rest. After all those battles, after all that loss, all that grief and brutality and, and yes, victory, after all of that, the promised land was to be a place of rest. It would take much faith. It would take even more suffering. But they would be delivered to a place of peace and purpose and purity, a promised place of rest. An active rest that brings glory to God. And that was Israel's purpose for getting to the promised land in the first place, to be a shining light for the Gentiles. 
So that's the second use of nuoc. The final two uses of nuoc, which is rest, are much quicker, very quick. First is the description of God or miraculously God's spirit resting on his people. In Numbers 11.25, the spirit of God descends to Moses and a group of 70 elders of Israel. And it says, when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied until they couldn't any longer. Similarly, in a passage that we looked at just two weeks ago, remember when we talked about um, the stump of Jesse, the, the new branch that God is raising up? We talked about that in the Remain sermon. Well, this is what it says in Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. In these two instances, and this usage is rare, but in these instances, God's spirit comes to rest on holy people. But again, it's an it's an active rest. It's a rest that does something. It's It results in the miraculous prophesying of the elders and in the empowering wisdom, strength, and knowledge that marks the Messiah apart from the rest of humanity. When God's spirit rests, like a fresh snowfall upon his faithful servants, it causes mighty changes, changes that bring glory to God. Finally, there's one more usage of rest in the Old Testament, and it is super common, um, especially in the books of First and Second Kings, and that's rest as a metaphor for death. Most of the kings in the royal lineage, both good and bad, are said to have rested with their ancestors and are buried in one of several cities, over and over and over again. This king died, Except it doesn't say he died, it says he was at rest and was buried with his ancestors. But rest as an image of death is used most powerfully by Job, who after all his sufferings sits silently with his friends until the first words that flow from his grief are these, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. There the wicked cease from turmoil and there the weary are at rest. I have no peace. No quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. And if that's not the best description of pure grief, I don't know what is, just not being at rest. This metaphor, rest as death and death as rest, makes sense to me. I assume you have. Has anybody ever been in the room as somebody dies? It's a very sacred, very powerful thing. You can. It's like you can feel it. And the, the first thing that many people say, especially after the person who's died has experienced a long illness or a really painful injury and succumbed to it, the first thing they say is they look so peaceful. They look like they're at rest. I'm sure you've heard something similar. Death looks restful, especially for those who have experienced particularly brutal journeys prior to death. Death is rest. It can be. It's a reprieve from the toil and agony and suffering of human life. So those are the four uses of rest in the Old Testament. I'm going to switch the slide. Can anybody remember all four? Here, I'll give you a quick chance to peek. There they are. Okay, what are they? Rest as Sabbath rest. Yes, Dale. The promised land. Yes, Sharon. Holy Spirit descending on his people. Yes, Lucy. And rest as death. Yes, Trish. So Trish, Lucy, Dale and Sharon, you get candy next Sunday. Lucky you. I'm going to forget again, so no promises. But the Sabbath rest was an active rest which involved ceasing from work in order to reconnect with God and others. The rest of the promised land was an active rest of peace, purpose, and purity in which faithfulness is rewarded despite a dangerous journey filled with suffering and pain. 
The resting of the Spirit of God was an act of rest in which God's presence dwells in the hearts of the faithful and transforms them. And finally, the rest of death. It's not an act of rest. It's really the only one that's not active. It's passive. But it's a passive rest in which the toil and agony of human existence ceases. And that brings us to the New Testament. As in English, there are many Greek words for rest, but the most significant and also most fun to say is pao. Go ahead, say pao. Katapao and anapao. They're very fun to say. In pao, we also find four distinct and important usages. And surprise, they line up perfectly with the Old Testament usages. This is Mark 6, 30 to 34. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. I love this story. I love this story. Do you know why I love this story? Because it shows how beautifully human Jesus is. He was not some robo-messiah with solar battery packs sucking up the Galilean sun who tirelessly healed and taught and saved with constantly full energy. He was not robo-messiah. No, Jesus needed a break. He needed a break, for goodness sake. And think of the ramifications of that. Even God himself needs a break. And what could he have been doing when he wasn't resting? You know, just saving people, healing people. But no, he needed a break, even Jesus. He needed solitude. He needed rest. Time and time in the Gospels, Jesus would retreat to some mountain or some lake or I assume the hospitality of someone's home and he would take some rest. He would take a mini Sabbath. As a perfectly obedient Jew who did not come to abolish the law but perfect it, Jesus absolutely respected the Old Testament laws regarding the Sabbath. But he also flaunted the man-made laws surrounding the day of rest. He picked grain when he was hungry, which was harvesting, which was work, and the Pharisees condemned him for it. He healed a man with a crippled hand in a synagogue on a Saturday, which was Sabbath day, despite that Sabbath day being off limits for doctor's work. He was condemned by the Pharisees for doing good on the Sabbath. So he respected the Old Testament laws regarding the Sabbath and totally flaunted and exposed the hypocrisy of the man-made Sabbath laws. Jesus didn't care one bit for silly legalistic attitudes towards the Sabbath, but he respected the heck out of the purpose of the Sabbath. He thrived on the purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus, even Jesus, needed to rest in his Father. As always, it was an active rest. He wasn't watching Netflix on the mountain. He was praying. He was praising. He was reconnecting to his Father and seeking his Father's will. He was being spiritually recharged as well as emotionally and physically recharged. Can you think of how, how emotionally draining it would be to have thousands of people flocking after you every day for you to touch and heal them? I mean, it's beautiful and glorious and good, but it must have been absolutely exhausting. And Jesus needed to recharge in order to more perfectly carry out his mission. Jesus rested. Jesus rested to make him a more effective follower of his father. Think about that. Even Jesus. He had many Sabbaths where he could because the crowds clamored for his love, his healing, and his teaching. In fact, you know what he did in Mark 6 immediately after that rest? After having compassion on the people? You know what he did? He fed 5,000 of them. Where did he get the power? Where did he get the power to do a miracle like that? 
Where did he get the compassion to see these sheep without a shepherd and to shepherd them? Where did he get the submission to his father's will? It wasn't automatic. He had to actively seek his father's power, love, and submission through Sabbath rest. Even Jesus, because he is not robo-messiah. What did Jesus do the night before the crucifixion? He prayed in the garden. He rested alone because the other disciples, they succumbed to physical exhaustion. They needed physical rest. And his was a tormented and violent rest, but it was a rest. And that rest gave him the strength to be executed 12 hours later for our redemption. That Sabbath rest, that's the first New Testament use of pao-o. And Jesus exemplified it. The next New Testament use of rest is similar to the Old Testament use of the promised land rest. In Hebrews 3 and 4, the author goes, we read that a few weeks ago, and we were all confused, right? I, I was. The author goes on and on about a Sabbath rest for God's people. Not all of it makes total sense to me, and I'll spare you the entire reading. But the general idea is this. Israel had been rebellious in the time of Moses and were therefore not permitted to enter the rest of the promised land. So the author of Hebrews looks at us Christians and he says, don't make that same mistake. Jesus has opened the door to a new promised land, a kingdom, a community of belief and obedience found in the kingdom of God. Don't miss your chance to enter the promised land rest of that kingdom. Don't carry on in rebellion, rejection, disobedience, and sin. Jesus crossed the metaphorical Jordan River, which if you remember the, the slave spirituals of you know, the 1700s, crossing Jordan always means dying. And it's, it's a beautiful image. And, and Jesus crossed the Jordan River to give us access to this place of rest. In fact, his crucified body is the bridge that gives us passage. He invites us to rest. He promises us a place of rest. Don't get yourself expelled from that place for disobedience. Life is full of suffering, but Jesus has prepared a place where we can rest from all of that. Speaking of which, 1 Peter 4 reads, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of God, or sorry, the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What rests on you? The same thing that rested on the 70 elders or the branch from the line of Jesse. If you suffer for Christ, the spirit of God will pao, will rest on you. It will rest in you. A similar thing happens in Acts 2. The first time we ever meet the Holy Spirit of God's presence, what happens? There's a mighty wind, and as it says in verse 3, tongues of fire came to rest on each of them. After that, like the 70 elders, back in Leviticus, there is powerful prophecy. So God's spirit comes to rest. That's the third thing. But it is, again, not a passive rest. It's an active rest that strengthens us in time of, of unjust suffering. If you suffer for my name, you, the Spirit will rest on you. So it's an active rest for, for times of unjust suffering. It's also an active rest that empowers us to speak and serve in ways that we never thought possible. As in the Old Testament, as in the New Testament, whenever the Spirit of God rests on us, his people, we become active in a new, profoundly powerful way. And as with God resting after creation, that powerful new activity is for our benefit and for his glory. Which brings us to the fourth use of rest in the New Testament, which is the same as the, the, rest of, the fourth rest of the Old Testament. And that is rest as what? Death. Death as rest. Kind of touched on this with the promised land rest of, of Hebrews 4, but where is that promised land? Or perhaps the better question is, because heaven is not a place that we go to, Heaven is a place that God brings down to us. So perhaps the better question is, when do we enter 
that promised land. We enter that promised land finally and fully in death. We've looked at rest in the very first words of Scripture, the book of Genesis, right from Genesis 2, but now we go to some of the very last. Here's Revelation 14, verses 11 to 13. It says, There will be no rest, no rest whatsoever, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. The Israelites, they had to suffer in battle to enter the promised land, their place of rest. And the same is true for you and me. But our enemies aren't neighboring tribes. Our enemies run deeper and darker and affect every human who's ever lived. We need to remain faithful despite a dark and corrupted world that tries to lure us away from the one in whom we rest. There are many beasts and many images and many marks that lead to toil and agony and destruction. And there is one beast that comes to all of us, and that is death. Sin and death are our greatest enemies, not the Amalekites or the Hittites or the Perizzites. Death and suffering. But Christ has prepared a place where we can rest from our enemies. And those enemies are death, sin, suffering, slavery to myself. Those are my enemies. And he prepares a place of rest from those enemies. For the faithful, death is rest. It's a reward. Like six days of working at Hootmers, you get a rest from it. That rest in death is a reward at the end of our labors. All of this New Testament usage of rest is framed by a passage that's truly unique. It doesn't reflect anything in the Old Testament. It's its own thing. It's a passage that proves that rest is not just a future reward. Rest is not just a future reward. It is a present reality. It's more than just a Sabbath rest. It's more than an anticipated promised land. It's more than the Spirit's presence in us. It's more than the peaceful rest of a resurrected life that conquers the grave. It combines all of this and points to something more beautiful than the sum of its restful parts. It points to Jesus himself. Jesus, who said this in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, all you who toil and agonize, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What a, what a bombshell of a passage, Matthew 11, 28-30. You do not need to wait for rest. As with resurrection, rebirth, redemption, refining, and others, rest is a past, present, and future reality. Jesus Christ unburdens us, making us free to love and serve and follow him, despite our many rebellions. He unburdens us from self-righteous legalism. He unburdens us from self-centered egocentrism. He unburdens us from self-loathing imperfection. He replaces our agonizing, toilsome human existence with a light and easy burden. That doesn't mean that life will be light and easy. Who does Jesus speak these words to? A bunch of people who will be martyred for their faith. So it's not that life becomes light and easy and comfortable and happy, necessarily. But the hope and peace and joy and love that comes with our refreshed and rejuvenated souls, that is light and easy. The same king who makes a temple out of his whole created earth, the same king who rests in that temple and bursts into the lives of his tiny human creatures, The same king who perfectly demonstrated God's mercy and strength and love. The same king 
who empowers us with his presence. The same king who conquered our enemies, even death, and prepares a place of rest for us, that same king invites us to drop the toilsome, agonizing yoke of humanity off our shoulders and trade that burdensome existence for one of rest. He takes up that yoke with us. Our king invites us to find our rest in him. As it says in Psalm 116, Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death. You've delivered my eyes from tears. You've delivered my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That's that promised land, the land of the living. Return to it. Return to your rest. Isaiah 30.15 says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Does rest sound weak? and timid, and, and small? In that verse, no, it's powerful. In quietness and trust, in repentance and rest, is your salvation. So to summarize all of this, rest is present from the very first words of Scripture right to the very last. In many ways, along with redemption, rebirth, re- reconciliation, and others, rest is the goal of Scripture. Jesus himself needed to rest in his Father, an act of rest that involves seeking worshiping, celebrating, and self-emptying for the benefit of his Father's will. And he calls us to do the same in him. Jesus' presence rests on us, delivering us into security and purpose and freedom. He does this for us now, but he will complete this in death. Death is the promised land that's still ahead, and there, at the end of the day, at the end of all of our days, our rest will be complete. Until then, find an active rest in the presence of Christ. We need it. Don't deprive of yourself of rest as I foolishly deprive myself of physical rest. Don't deprive yourself of resting in Christ. Why would you when it it, it comes with so much blessing and reward? We need rest. We need rest to gain our strength from his spirit. We need rest to know and celebrate and share his love. We need rest to live both now and after death. So there you have it. The end of the reexamination. We've seen our rebellion and rejection. We've explored the importance of repentance, refining, remaining, and relationship. And in the end, having known redemption, resurrection, reconciliation, rebirth, we will find rest. Not just rest from this sermon series. Jesus' rest. Rest for our souls. A beautiful rest we can experience now, but fully experience, thankfully, when, when our day of rest comes. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to be quiet and to be still and to rest in your presence. Holy Spirit, thank you that you rest on us and transform us. Thank you for Sabbath rest, that we don't just recharge physically, but we recharge emotionally, spiritually. We recharge in our faith when we rest in you, Jesus. Father, we are not looking forward to the rest that comes with death necessarily, but We trust in it. We hope in it. We know that one day we will fully rest in your arms. Um, It's a beautiful image, but until then, help us to actively rest in you, to find ways to serve, to worship, to bring you glory. We thank you for rest. I pray that that this would be a place where we rest in each other's presence, but most of all, that we would rest in your presence. That as we rest, we'd be refilled with your presence to serve you well and bring you glory. And we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I hope you have a rest today. I'm going to watch football. I find that very restful. 
going to hang out with my family and my extended family. I find that very restful. And I'm uh, going to eat some delicious food downstairs, possibly the most restful of all. But uh, have a restful day. Our Creator created us with a need for rest. So rest, for goodness sake, just rest. You're all saying, I don't drool, but come on. Who are you fooling here?